As we come now to God's Word, you can turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to follow along, to Mark in chapter 12. That's no surprise if you've been with us. It's just the next part of Mark. Mark in chapter 12. And as you turn there, would you pray with me? Our God, would you help us now to really listen to you? Would you help us to hear from you in a way that really changes us, in a way that makes us holy, in a way that produces rest and joy in you? We need you now. Would you guide us by your spirit? And we give you all thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark in chapter 9. We'll start in verse 35 and read through the end of the chapter. Mark, this is Mark 12, starting in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at, the, at feasts and who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to, him, and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's word. Now, this is probably a familiar text to many of us. If you've been a Christian for some time, you've heard uh, probably the story of the widow's might more than once. The word might, by the way, is from the old uh, King James translation, but the story of the widow who's putting in these two small, small coins. And usually when we hear a discussion of this, it's portrayed as a picture of sacrificial giving. And I'll tell you, this week, as I wrestled with this text, I wrestled more with this text than any other text I have in Mark. Because I don't think it says what I've always heard. I don't think it says what I've always thought. I don't, I don't know that it's quite about that. Now, I'm hesitant always to disagree with people, especially great thinkers, Christians who have mulled over things for many years. And I'm not the only one that thinks this, but when we come to God's Word, we know this is different than any other book. It's breathed out by God, which means that it's a communication 
from God to us. And so just like any other communication, in order to really get what's going on, we have to work on some level to really listen, to really hear what Jesus is saying, to really hear what Mark is telling us, to really hear what God is telling us, even if I think I already know what he means. Because if we really listen, sometimes we'll be corrected. Sometimes we'll have to adjust something in our understanding, and that happened to me. And I know this idea of great cost and sacrificial living on some level is true in the whole of the scripture. In fact, if you were here with us last week, we talked about how we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's really sacrificial living. And not long ago, Jesus has just talked about how we're to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him. These things are true. But I don't think that's what this text is talking about. When we look at the widow here, I don't think it's a call to radical sacrifice. I don't think it's a call to give out of our poverty. So, what is it about? Let's come and see together, you, me, all of us together. Let's try to listen then to what Jesus, to what Mark, to what God is saying to us. And we'll look first, look at that first section, starting in 35. I'll, I won't say much about this section where he talks about being the son of David, uh, because we addressed that at the end of chapter 10, when the, the blind man, Bartimaeus, comes and cries out to Jesus and calls him the son of David. Uh, but to summarize this, Jesus is basically pointing out that this promised one who was to come, this one who was called the son of David, David calls this one Lord. So in other words, Jesus is telling us that this son of David, the promised one who's coming in all of the scriptures, is more than just a king in the line of David. He's the king, the bigger king. And at the end of that section, in verse 37, it says, a great throng heard him. Throng's a funny word to me, but a big old group of folks, a great throng heard him gladly. At this part, you know, there's clapping. I don't know, actually snapping, I guess if it's a poetry jam. Somehow, internally, they feel good about that experience, and that changes very quickly. Look at verse 38. So they heard him gladly, and then 38, in his teaching, he says, beware, look out. He's about to give us a warning here, particularly a warning against the scribes. The scribes were a group of people who were in charge of interpreting the scriptures. They, they were, uh, part of their job was to tell the people how to live a godly life, and that was an important job. It was an honorable job, but Jesus does not seem to be happy with them. That's an understatement. He calls them out on six things. This is not a six-point sermon, okay? We'll get to lunch, I promise. Uh, but he calls them out on six things. Look, you can see the six things there. The scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They like greetings in the marketplaces. They have the best seats in the synagogue, and they have places of honor at feasts, and they devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, they make long prayers. And when we look at those things, 
these things, many of them are not bad in themselves. In fact, the one that makes me chuckle a little bit is the greetings. They like greetings in the market. I kind of like greetings in the marketplace, you know? And you say, oh, hello. Specifically, that they would have been like, oh, hello, scribe. Or a version of that is hello, pastor. Hello, reverend. And that by itself is not necessarily bad. Same with the, the long robes. You know, we know in the Old Testament, the prophets put on these things called mantles to mark them uh, very often as prophets. It was a good thing to show who the prophets were and who the prophets were not. The same thing with the places of honor. We know in the scripture, it tells us then to honor people uh, sometimes. So what's really the problem here? And I think we see the key or the answer to this in verse 40 in the last one when he says, and for a pretense they make long prayers. Or maybe your Bible translates that for a, a show. The motive, then, in doing these things for the scribe was to be seen, to be noticed. It wasn't just to be holy, but to be known as a holy person. That was his issue with them. They were using unholiness as a disguise for their pride, or really using holiness, pretending to to be holy to cover up their own pride. And the scripture says that people like this will get their reward now. Before men, they'll be honored. But Jesus, at the end of this section, says what's coming is that before God, they will be condemned. Now, when I looked at that list of the six things that the scribes are condemned for, something bugged me about that list, because something in in the list of six seemed out of place. You know, one of these things is not like the other. Is that from Sesame Street? Uh, Is it? (laughs) Got to weave Sesame Street into the sermons. But, you know, some of them seem to kind of fit in a certain category, but there was one that seemed out of place, at least to me. You know, they want honor here, they want honor here, they want honor here, and they devour widows' houses. And then they make long prayers. The, 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 the devour widows' houses throws me off. I mean, it's the, uh, the harshest one. The language there is like, whoa, devour widows' houses sounds really nasty. What does Jesus mean by that? And I think to answer this, Mark is purposefully putting what's happening next right after here. We see an example in the very next text of a widow who is being devoured. Right after Jesus has just given this little speech about how they're to beware of the the scribes, then he sits down, verse 41, then he sits down opposite the treasury. And the treasury was this uh, group of of boxes near the temple, in and near the temple. Uh, There were 13 little horn-looking things. The way it was described reminds me of those old McDonald's things. You put the coin in and it kind of goes around, you know, but they're probably smaller than that, but 13 of these where you could throw the coins in and it would deposit it into the box. And so, uh, you know, if people are going by and you hear the coins clinking in and Jesus is, is watching this and he sees some people who give a whole lot, you know, they pull out their coin purse or whatever it is and just dump a whole bunch in there. And then he sees this widow who, who gives her last two coins And then you see Jesus calls his disciples, and 
in verse 43, and he says, come here. I want you to look at this. The paraphrase of what he says then is this woman has nothing left. Now this is the point at which we hear some people say that Jesus is praising their sacrifice or praising the woman's sacrifice. Look, she gave all she had. Giving is is great. Let's pass the offering plate now. That's a really great time to get that in there. That's where you hear the discussion. But you'll notice Jesus doesn't actually approve or disapprove. He's just, uh, he's not commenting on her motive or anything. He's just pointing out what's happening. Listen, disciples, look at what's happening. This woman has nothing left. He's not necessarily criticizing her, but I think He's pushing against a system that's happening. And based on what's happened right before, here's what I think he means by this. This widow was poor already, and now look, she is literally penniless. This system was supposed to care for the widow to care for the needy and the vulnerable, and instead it has stood on the back of the needy. These shepherds are feeding on the bones of the sheep. This religious system is eating this woman alive by setting up this impression that her works before God are based on what she can give. She's made to think that if she were really holy, that she would give to the temple. And if she gives, then God will love you. Then God will favor you. If you earn your place, if you do your part, if you pay your due, if you prove your righteousness by giving your money, that is not the gospel. I'm not making this up. The very next uh, couple of verses in chapter 13, he walks out of the temple, and one of the disciples says, look how beautiful the stones are, and look how beautiful the buildings are. See how beautiful this temple is. And Jesus says, it's going to be thrown down. I will crush it. The beauty of this temple will be left in dust. And every coin that was used to build this temple of works will be left in a pile of rubble. This religious system was polishing the temple with the coins of a poor widow. And in the process, she was devoured. Jesus' speech against the scribes in this text is an abbreviated version. In Matthew's gospel, it's Matthew chapter 23. We won't read it because it's the whole chapter. It's a much longer criticism of the Pharisees and the scribes. And in that chapter, Jesus uses some of the harshest words he ever uses. He calls them hypocrites, sons of hell, blind guides, whitewashed tombs, serpents, and broods of vipers. Why is he so harsh? Because this system 
had turned faith into a treadmill for our feet and had turned freedom into a yoke for our neck. And so Jesus says, beware. Don't be taken in by this. Paul says a similar thing in Galatians chapter 5. You can turn there. Here he's not talking about coins and giving, but here he's talking about law in the form of circumcision, but still an act of works. This is Galatians in chapter 1, or chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Basically, Paul says this, that if your own righteousness is any work of the law, if that is your hope, there is no room for grace. There is no room for Jesus there. History is full of examples of this. One of the biggest uh, we still see, it's still standing today in the Vatican, is St. Peter's Basilica. I haven't seen it in person, but I've seen pictures. It's pretty. And years ago, a few hundred years ago, St. Peter's Basilica was built on indulgences where they'd go around and have people pay a certain amount so that their loved, friends and loved ones would be released from purgatory. Now, none of that came from the scripture, but that's what they did. By the way, can you imagine that that would be especially appealing to widows who would have lost their spouse? If you pay this much, it will spring your husband from purgatory. And out of it came a big, gorgeous place of worship. I don't want to place all the blame on the Catholics because Protestants are just as guilty of this. We set up systems in which we, if you really mean it, if you really love Jesus, you will uh, do this. And I, I've heard so many stories that ache me of people that have been crushed by systems like these. We give each other the impression that Christians are supposed to do better and be better in order to please God. It's really playing on our guilt and our fear. Have you ever felt that? Felt like you were not measuring up to the Christian standard? Felt the heavy yoke of the law on your neck? Felt the endless treadmill under your feet? that eventually leaves us collapsed in exhaustion. 
listen to me now. Jesus says, beware of that thought. Beware of that system. Guard against that temptation or the, the draw to some sort of self-righteousness or works-based righteousness because Jesus says that system, that is not from me. That system leads far away from me. At the very beginning of Mark's gospel, his first words, here's what the book is about. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus, then, is that he's not like the scribes. He's not like these people that will milk us dry, leave us empty, and take every cent we've got. Our God is not one who takes. Our God is one who mainly gives. A place in Isaiah about this that I just love. Isaiah in chapter 55. The Lord himself is speaking here. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1, he says this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat Come by wine and milk without money and without price. He says here, you don't have any money to give. That's okay. I paid it. This is my gift to you. Come eat. He keeps going here in verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. He says, don't spend a dime on bread which isn't bread. I want instead for you to feast on my grace. There's a lovely image at the end of Revelation in Revelation 19 where all the believers in Christ are gathered together at what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. I imagine there are a whole lot of tables strung together. I don't know how that works. But the bride of Christ, the church, are gathered together and eat with the Lord. The marriage supper of the Lamb is not a potluck. The marriage supper of the lamb is not a, a carrion. You do not bring a dish to the marriage supper of the lamb. Jesus says, this is all my feast. This is all my food, and it is my delight to give it to you without cost. So come out of the kitchen, put down your scrub brush, and take off your server's uniform, come sit with me. Eat with me and be satisfied. Share in my delight. Because Jesus would say, my temple is eternal. My sacrifice is complete. And for all believers, my righteousness is yours. That's good news. In all of this, 
we do have to be careful. We know that the opposite of a self-righteousness is not unrighteousness. The opposite of self-righteousness is Christ-righteousness. And Christ-righteousness, which belongs to all believers, does lead us to obedience. It leads us in holiness. It leads us to worship together in the context of the church. It leads us to care for the poor and the widow and the needy. It leads us to give, even of our money, to support those who lead us in other causes for the advancement of the gospel. So that when we live, we're not living for a pretense. We're not living for a show or, or to live showy lives, but living holy lives that really reflect our Lord. The point here, I think, is that we would not get caught up in a religion of works so much so that we would miss God and the riches of his grace, that we would not get so distracted by the clinking of the coins in the can, that we'd miss the tambourines and the clapping and the dancing of God's people singing praise to him. Because we serve a God who has crushed the treadmill of self-righteousness with his own righteousness. We serve a God who calls the poor in spirit, who calls the hungry and the thirsty, a God who calls the sinner, who calls the poor widow and says, come without money and without price. That's a good God. Perhaps, in all of this, the widow really did get it. I can't peek into her mind here. Jesus doesn't comment on her mindset. But per perhaps she was not taken in by this sort of religious pressure to give as a means to earn favor of God. Perhaps she already was aware of the danger of the hypocrites. Perhaps she was already on guard against that. And if one of the disciples who's with Jesus watching what's happening went up to her and tapped on her shoulder and says, you know... Jesus, the son of David, is here, and he is your righteousness. There is no debt left to pay. Perhaps she would just smile and say, I know. This is just how I say thanks to God, and drops her two coins in anyway. I want a heart like that. Lord, give us hearts like that that we're not running on this treadmill of my own righteousness, but I'm actually just saying thank you. So that when we see that Jesus in his righteousness has completely satisfied the payment of debt for us, we can give. Even in our poverty, and that giving won't be out of fear or guilt or obligation, but we could give really out of thankful hearts to the king who paid with his own life to give us his righteousness. This is the God 
we worship. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, would you help us to see your righteousness, your glory, your offering on our behalf? We want to see this in a way that moves us to love you, to see that you really are lovely, that produces in us thankful hearts that really give, hearts that aren't crushed, but hearts that are truly free. Thank you for being our righteousness. Help us then to follow after you in worship. We give you all of our thanks and all of our praise. In Jesus' name, amen.